0: Previously on Flying the Line, the pilots of American Airlines leave ALPA to form their own labor union, but not without a heavy burden. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 23 Jets and Thin Ice. Part 1 Rites of passage are never easy. Ask the old helmet and goggle airmail pilots what it was like to go from open cockpits to Ford trimotors and in instrument flight. Then ask their successors, the second generation of professional airline pilots what it was like to go from the DC-3 to the super-constellation. By the late 1950s, airline pilots were about to undergo another baptism by fire under new technology. The jets were coming. For 20 years, the jets continued to improve and develop in the world's military services. Their adoption in commercial aviation was inevitable. Always pushing each other, the pioneers extended the frontiers of aviation until development became an all-consuming passion, a kind of religion that saw aviators sacrifice their lives and fortunes to fly faster and higher. No one could restrain this rush to progress. After World War II, sleek military jets were at the cutting edge of aviation development, but commercial exploitation of the jet's potential would have to wait until the needs of national defense abated. This was a far cry from the 1930s, when the Douglas Commercial Series, the planes that made the first real profits, were at the peak of existing technology and were totally a product of the private sector. The military aspect of jet aviation was troubling to many airline pilots, largely because of an image problem. The popular media depicted jet pilots as hard-living, bushy-haired, physically flawless specimens of young manhood, rather like airline pilots had been depicted in the 1930s. Magazines, movies, and television saturated the 1950s with sensational accounts of the physical ordeal that high-altitude jet flight put these young military pilots through, endlessly making the point that flying these hot new planes was a young man's game. It was because of this image that veteran, middle-aged airline pilots felt apprehensive about their futures once the new jets came on the line. But in reality, the transition to jets was something most pilots would take in stride. A big airplane was, after all, just a big airplane. And the pilot who had mastered Douglas DC-7s, or Boeing Stratocruisers, were usually short enough of their own abilities to handle new power plants and increase speed. But there were exceptions. And everybody who lived through the jet transition knew of a pilot whose career had been short-circuited, usually by the disease of alcoholism. Consider the massive changes that the new jets brought to air transportation. Big and swept-winged, operating smack up against the sound barrier and on the threshold of the stratosphere, these new jets were able to shrink continents and oceans like no passenger plane had ever done before. By the mid-1950s, The old prop planes had already extended their technological parameters as far as possible, and the traveling public was growing weary of their time envelopes. Coast to coast, the props still ate up 10 hours between boarding and deplaning for the ordinary passenger. But the jets could cut that time down to less than a working day, about five hours of airtime and maybe an hour on each end to get to and from the airport, provided that the antiquated ground transport systems weren't too crowded. For international travelers, the differences were even more astounding. London was only seven hours away from New York for a jet setter, but for a prop passenger, it was a half a day's journey. For engineers, The new jets were technological marvels, collections of scientific advances in dozens of fields from avionics to metallurgy to aerodynamics. For airline management, the new jets were at once a risk and an opportunity. History had shown that the airline boss who jumped in too fast, who committed to a new airplane before all the glitches were out, was taking a chance. If the Jets proved unreliable, his competitors would sell more of that most perishable of commodities, passenger seats, by plugging along in their safe and sure old props. On the other hand, if the Jets proved successful, and if an airline manager waited too long to place their name on the order list at the factory, the airline stood to lose out To the more advanced ones with jets who would lay first claim to passenger loyalties. But the risk for pilots were greatest of all. Working pilots, ordinary people who had somehow made airline piloting their calling, would ultimately have to break these new turbojet monsters to the commercial harness and would have to learn their jets' eccentricities daily out on the line. In fair weather, And foul. Long after the engineers had put away their sensitive instrumentation and the test pilots had gone on to the next frontier of aviation, ordinary line pilots would still be exercising their stewardship over the new jets, learning about them much as the pilots who came before them had unraveled the mysteries of the Ford trimotor after the engineers thought there were none. Unfortunately, some pilots would pay with their lives to advance the curve of learning, as ALPA had no role in aircraft certification. The enormous changes wrought by the coming of jets meant new problems for ALPA, but also new opportunities. Because the new jets represented a quantum jump in pilot productivity, most ALPA members insisted that they should be paid more, a lot more, for the average pilot, the greatest impact of jets was that pay scales took off. This dramatic jump in salaries didn't happen by accident or at the largesse of the companies. ALPA's hard spade work prepared the ground for higher pay scales, and most pilots fully appreciated the work being done by the Committee on Jet Pay, which provided the rationale and justification for new contracts at each airline. But another aspect of ALPA's role in the coming of jets was never far from the mind of the typical pilot. What will ALPA do for me if I can't cut it was the haunting question many pilots secretly harbored. The local council chairperson at each airline domicile usually bore the brunt of this apprehension for they were the first to know when things went sour for a pilot moving to jets. The experience of each pilot group under jet transition was different, yet somehow the same. Troubling. Particularly troublesome was the transition at United Airlines, owing to the merger with Capital in 1961. Capital, originally Pennsylvania Central, was the odd man out among large trunk carriers. Unlike its big four competitors, United, TWA, American, and Eastern, capital was burdened with mostly short-haul routes, which meant that although it ranked fifth in almost every category, its profitability was vastly inferior. Given the tightly regulated structure of the airline industry in the 1950s, Capital's only chance of improving its profitability over what was essentially a local service route structure was in acquiring new aircraft that was so efficient and so superior that new passengers would come in droves. Traditionally, the Big Four had led the industry in technological innovation, largely because they had financial resources that airlines like Capital lacked. In one of the great gambles in the history of commercial aviation, Capitals President J. H. Carmichael ordered a fleet of British-built Vickers Viscount turboprops in 1956. Carmichael was aware that the pure jets were coming, and that neither his route structure nor his financial situation warranted their acquisition. The great advantage of jets was speed. But owing to the time eaten up by approach, landing, and ground turnaround, this advantage melted away on short-haul routes. The marriage of turbine power and propellers, however, meant that some of the pleasing characteristics of jets—a quiet ride, lower fares, and better schedules—could be adapted to routes that were the natural habitat of aircraft with slower— but more economical reciprocating engines. Carmichael and Capital would ultimately lose their gamble. The economic climate of 1956 dealt Capital the most telling blow. With a business recession in progress, it was a poor time to introduce the expanded service that Viscounts made possible. Also, there were crashes that dampened passenger enthusiasm for the Viscount. Eventually, the Viscounts performed well enough, but Capital's route structure itself was impossible. Finally, the only way out for Capital was a merger. United picked up the pieces in 1961. Under the auspices of the Civil Aeronautics Board, the merger of Capital and United brought salvation to the pilots of Capital, but they donned United uniforms as distinctly second-class citizens. The capital pilots had always lived under a rather informal system that lacked the rigor United Pilots had known. Consequently, the United Airlines Training School, known as the Denver Aggravation, hit the capital pilots hard. Ironically, the capital pilots, who had been flying turbine equipment before the United Pilots group, now faced pressure to relinquish their bidding rights to the jets that United had placed in service in 1960. One cause of ALPA's financial malaise of the early 1960s was the bitter seniority fight arising from the United-Capital merger. Eventually, things worked out and the two pilot groups blended harmoniously, thanks to the careful procedures, that ALPA had so painstakingly developed for settling disputes. But what was a rough period for most airline pilots was doubly so for the capital pilots, who came to regard the Denver Training School with a phobia bordering on paranoia. In short, the capital pilots worried that United might be using the rigorous training system to get rid of them. The rigor of the United Training System foreshadowed a general toughening of school requirements throughout the industry. The new stress on comprehensive ground training came from the campaign of Federal Aviation Administration head Pete Quesada, the ex Air Force general who seemed to bear a grudge against airline pilots, or so many ALPA members thought, operating under the rubric that low pilot proficiency caused most of the safety problems accompanying the introduction of jets, Casada insisted the FAA inspectors join regular crew members at random in the cockpit to conduct the aeronautical equivalent of pop quizzes. Casada's approach to improving pilot proficiency caused the only unauthorized strike in ALPA's history. It began with Casada's insistence that his inspectors be allowed to ride in the third pilot's seat during regular flights. When this controversy developed in June 1960, most airlines operating jet equipment carried a crew of four, three pilots and a flight engineer. The third pilot occupied a seat immediately behind and to the right of the captain. Casada insisted, that the inspector occupy the jump seat opposite the flight engineer station. It was a clear case of conflict over command authority since the pilots insisted that the third pilot had duties to perform, whereas Casada argued that his inspector's function took precedence over the crew function and that in any case, the FAA personnel were fully qualified to perform the third pilot's duties. It was over this conflict that the pilots of Eastern, Pan American, TWA, and American began guerrilla actions against the FAA. During June 1960, several pilots at these airlines refused to fly. When the FAA official entered the cockpit, and insisted upon taking the third pilot's seat, they simply canceled the flight. Casada again threatened dire consequences for pilots refusing to fly with his inspectors. With the problem of Electra structural failures still bubbling and the safety record deteriorating despite his crackdown on pilots, Casada found the pilots' guerrilla rebellion against his inspectors, a convenient diversion. In a spate of news releases and interviews, notably with U.S. News & World Report, Casada flatly declared that pilot error was still the largest single cause of fatal accidents, and he threatened to revoke the license of the next pilot who refused to fly with an inspector in the third seat. Casada's hard-nosed attitude provoked the Wildcat strike at Eastern. The pilots who operated DC-8B equipment approached ALPA about authorizing a strike. But Clancy Sagan, after soliciting legal opinions from outside experts, concluded that there was no contractually acceptable way to strike under ALPA auspices. Next time on Flying the Line, the pilots at Eastern Airlines strike, and ALPA walks a fine line between the pilots and management. Thank you for listening. This has been Part 1 of Chapter 23 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2021. All rights reserved.